Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Sherlock's podcast, your guide to a more stylish life. Hello, I'm Georgie Corridge-Cole, Sherlock's founder and CEO, and welcome to today's In Conversation With podcast. Today's podcast is a special edition. It is the first business careers and finance podcast, and I'm thrilled to introduce our first guest to mark the launch of our new quarterly supplement. Our guest is Pippa Lamb. She is a bit of an anomaly in the venture capital world. She is a partner at Sweet Capital, an early stage investment fund set up by the founders of none other than the mobile game Candy Crush and she's very much in the minority as a woman but more on that later and regardless it hasn't stopped her from rising through the ranks and learning plenty of valuable lessons along the way. She's here today to share lots of advice, her story. Um, Pippa, thank you so much for joining me and welcome. We've interviewed you before at Sherlock's and I was actually in preparation for today rereading that interview which was a couple of years ago and thinking what brilliant advice you gave um, and thank it's you great so much. Here. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for putting us in. You're like <laughs> seriously busy. So I'm really very grateful always to, to the guests that give up their time. But yeah, I know you're particularly busy. I was looking back, I was researching your career, as I said, in preparation for today. And you really achieved so much. It's quite phenomenal. Can you take us back to your upbringing? So your father is Chinese, yes. your mother British. Yes. You grew up here. Yes. Can you take a, tell us a little bit about your upbringing, your education, your journey to Oxford? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I think it's amazing that you guys are launching the supplement around business and finance. I think that one of the things I always say is there could be more resources out there that are, you know, targeted more of a female readership. Um, but do cover these these topics. So really excited to be here and very honoured to be the first guest. I think as women, we can make them less dry. You know, when you read about them in the FT, you sort of glaze over, <laughs> but, you know, hopefully. Yeah, I, I think it's about like, humanising it and also maybe sharing stories. And you know, hopefully by sharing my story, I can encourage other women who are interested in following a similar path. But yeah, to your point, I actually grew up in a very creative household. So um, it's sort of creative creativity and science my father is a lifelong entrepreneur um sort of science engineer um you know was making trying to get us to make your own radio kits when we were like 11 and you know all sorts of crazy science experiments around the house and my mother was a doctor so obviously the science part there but we grew up around you know lots of art and music my parents actually met in an orchestra which is always funny fun fact um so actually when I first went up to Oxford, I think that the reality was is I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I'd always, because of my bicultural upbringing, I think I was interested in a career perhaps in the foreign office or in diplomacy. And and actually when I first graduated from Oxford, I ended up going into the foreign office and I worked there for um, sort of the first kind of year of like, you know, I interned there and I worked there right after I graduated. Um, and I found it absolutely fascinating, but I think the reality was is that I had a broad range of interests and I think that you know one of the things that I was really important to found it really important to do was trying to explore like use my time at Oxford to really explore lots of different things so I did you know loads of internships um whilst you were at university whilst I was at university you know including like the BBC you know I did one at Condé Nast um and, and then obviously with the foreign office and I think that and I and I did one in finance so I think you know, I really saw that time as a time to explore all of these interests. Mm. And that's one of the things I often offer as advice is, you know, I think there's this misconception that we're all born knowing exactly what we want to do Mm. and that we have to be on a set path. But the reality was for me, it was very much more trial and error. So I always say that I think France get it right, where they make students do what what they call stagiaires, which are internships. And I think you have to do one for every year. You're at university. I always think it should be part of the curriculum. That, yeah, that you have to pass that year by doing a doing a stagiaire and internship somewhere and trying something new. I agree, absolutely, because you can also have 
preconceptions about what an industry might be like mm. and then when you get into it you're like actually no this isn't what I signed up for so I think for me the times that I've been in education I've really tried to actually you know cram it full of actual practical experience as well um but the reality was is that I, I got to foreign office I absolutely loved it I was super fortunate to go and work on at the time it was David Cameron's first state uh, visit to China um, and you did Chinese at Oxford yes yes so I, I although I'd, I'd grown up um, in a sort of bicultural household you know I'd always wanted to learn more about my heritage and really get very proficient in in Mandarin so um, my main focus at Oxford yeah was was Mandarin I also because of that I got to spend time um, in in Beijing and I studied at Peking University which wow. was just a phenomenal did experience you do a year there it wasn't quite a year, it was about six months, right. but yeah, it was just, you know, the opportunity in, to go and see. Terms, that's quite, that's quite yeah, big. exactly. It was basically most of my second year, um, but it was just a phenomenal experience to go and, and see a part of the world that was evolving so quickly. Mm. And I think that really also informed my desire to go and work for the foreign office because I thought this is it's just so fascinating to be at the inception of an economy, which is you know absolutely flying at the moment and um and this must have been sort of 12 years ago or something yeah this was you know I mean I, I sort of was focused on looking at the Chinese economy and and investing and well at that point not investing but that through most of my undergrad and then spent that time in the foreign office and and loved it but I think ultimately I got there I was surrounded by all this technological change and seeing the way that Chinese consumers were interacting with things like e-commerce and fintech and things like Alipay, you know, people were paying with their phones way before they were in, in the West. And I just thought, okay, this has been absolutely fascinating, but I think there may be a better vehicle for me to explore some of these interests of, you know, emerging trends in technology and consumer trends than in the foreign office. And although I loved the idea of, of diplomacy, I thought, okay, actually, can I go to a place where I feel like I'm learning more of these hard skills um, and ultimately financial skills? And so how long were you at the foreign office for? Um, it was about a year. So it was- And your role was what? So I was initially hired to work on a project called the Shanghai World Expo. At the time, right. um, the UK was participating and we had this amazing, pavilion that was designed by Thomas Heatherwick, who's an incredible architect and friend of mine. And we were effectively, you know, managing a portfolio of interests for the foreign office that could be nuclear proliferation. Uh, it could have been how we could build trade between China and the UK um, and all sorts of other sort of geopolitical topics at the time. So I was a bit of a, um, you know, I was super junior. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was running around and I was working for the consul general and so she would sort of place me onto different projects, but the main one was the Shanghai Expo. And then I only ask because I, I sort of hear, I feel like we hear <laughs> about Foreign Office, and do we actually know? What no, that it's very means? nebulous, and, and and I think probably partly by design, right? But then, so I worked on the Shanghai Expo, and then my role evolved into then getting posted to work in Beijing to work on David Cameron's first visit, which mm -hmm. was great. I mean, got to take, you know, MPs. Well, I got to take cabinet ministers to the Great Wall to Peking University, which is where I'd studied. And it was a very surreal experience as, you know, like a 22 year old, um, yeah. but it was a lot of fun and mm. just an amazing experience. So you did a year there and, and then what was your next move? So I then, I basically had made this decision that I wanted to go into a graduate recruitment scheme. And at that point, I think because I've been so inspired by watching my father, who's a lifelong entrepreneur growing up, I just, I was so fascinated by business and entrepreneurship. And for me, I wanted to go and work in a role that was going to equip me with those skills that I thought would be important for running a business, um, which is obviously very opportune for our topic today. So I thought, okay, why don't I go and get some experience in the finance industry and you know, sort of bolster my, my experience in that area. So I went off and I joined uh, an investment bank and I... And that was JP Morgan. I was at JP Morgan, yep. And I actually, I loved it. I found the first year really tough because it was, um, you know, it's, it's a very sort of prescriptive, you know, super long hours. You know, I was, 
I've never been someone that has shied away from fear from you know working really hard but it was it was very extreme you know I hadn't got into that office environment before you know I was like 22 23 at this point so I ended up staying there for five years um, which was longer than I thought I was going to initially and how long was the training scheme so well I mean I think it varies in different indus- uh, banks. It varies in different banks, but for J.P. Morgan at the time, we sort of were sent to New York for six weeks, which was pretty cool, by the way. <laughs> uh, and then you're sort of launched into the analyst program. Right. And so I ended up doing just under two years in London, and then I actually raised my hand and said that I would be, you know, very excited and willing to do some experience in another office and at at the time and I was also interested in sort of trying out different teams and you know the great thing about being in a massive company is there are opportunities for Mm. mobility across different offices teams so I then spent the next sort of three and a half years in Hong Kong and yeah and I was focused on equity research so I was working on publicly traded companies having an opinion on you know, Asian companies like Tencent, Baidu, Alibaba, you know, they just IPO'd. And then in the US, you know, looking at like big tech companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook, well, Meta now. And I was just blown away. I, I actually loved the research part. I, you know, I'd loved going into holes, reading about, you know, why a company was doing well or why it wasn't. And, and the more you discover, the more fascinating. Yeah, it and it yeah. was, you know, working in public markets is fast paced. You've got these massive Bloomberg terminals around you. You can see numbers and you're seeing the world in, in real terms mm. being interpreted through numbers on a screen. It's mm. it's really exciting. I was like, math is great, Rishi. But <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it's, you know, I, I love that. I would describe at the time that my role was to sort of, quantify the news Mm. so I would be seeing okay what's going on geopolitically what is going on in terms of this company you know what are consumers wanting to spend time on and then I would basically try and translate that into whether we should buy or sell a stock and it was really exciting and it was and it was it was fun and and Hong Kong was amazing I mean to be uh, in that part of the world watching all of the changes that were happening in the economy and in consumer habits was super exciting and um, and that's ultimately why I ended up staying as long as I did I think when I initially went in I thought that I would probably spend a couple of years and then you know maybe go on to something else but I I think I got lucky with my experience I loved the team I loved you know the company I worked for was was brilliant and And, and how was it being a female what was the what was the split was it even a thing in that world it absolutely was but i'd say at you know some of the larger firms they've got a lot more resources to essentially put into training around diversity etc so my experience working for a very large bank was that there was a lot of proactivity now it didn't mean that it you know everything was perfect far from that but i think that it really just taught me to work with just an utmost sense of professionalism at all times and and there were so many resources for you know women in finance etc and so I really benefited from my first sort of long career move being in a place that was very on the sort of front foot about that I think in later parts of my career where there are less defined structures it's in those that sometimes you know things still need a bit more work when it comes to diversity and, and practices. I also think, I mean, I worked in a quite a big business when I started my career with Coty uh, Beauty. And, and I think the structure of of a company like that and the processes do teach you quite a lot, don't they? Even if you then go on to do something that's... Yeah, and, yeah, and actually I, I really attribute a lot of sort of how I get things done now to a lot of the training I had mm, when sure. I was working in, in a large bank, sure. you know. And so <clears> you <throat> did five years at J.P. Morgan. Yes. And what happened next? I still love the job, but I realized that I wasn't really, you know, if we try, if we go backwards, I had, why had I gone into finance in the first place? I'd gone in because I was inspired by my father, who was an entrepreneur, and I wanted to equip myself with the types of skills that I thought would help me work in a business or in a business environment so that I could work around people like my father or I could be involved in that world and somehow and you know because I'd loved the job and I really enjoyed the the sort of 
academic part of the research role I, I ended up in, I sort of kind of got lost along the way with that. And I really enjoyed it. But I think I just started to realize that I'd, you know, that sort of saying, you've got why you started or what, you know, remember why you started. And I just, it kind of hit me. And I just thought, okay, you know, do I see myself doing this job for the rest of my life? Probably not. Do I think that it plays to my strengths in the best possible way? Maybe, but do I feel passionate about what I'm doing? And and it was really hard. I, I took, you know, quite a big step back to think about, you know, my next steps. And look, it's really hard when you're, you're, I was getting a great salary, my life was fun. I had, you know, Hong Kong was amazing fun, but it took me a bit of time to just say, okay, actually, no, like, you need to stick to What's what you want goal? to do yeah. exactly and I think that or that's exactly and I think that's something that's that's quite common for people in their like mid-20s so for me I you know the way that I address that was by saying okay I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to go off and I'm going to do an MBA and I'm going to spend those two years doing what we said about before which is exploring all of the things I'm interested in, I'm going to do loads of internships, I'm going to use the MBA as really as a platform to rediscover what I want to do again. And it was exciting. It was a, it felt like an adventure. And, and so and you went to Harvard Business School. Yes. So I applied to Harvard, I was pretty sure that I, I if I could get into Harvard, that was where I wanted to go. I thought it was they had um, the Harvard Kennedy School, which has kind of geopolitics. And I, I was still interested in, in that world a bit. And so I I applied to Harvard. It's you know one of the best MBA programs in the world. And I was very fortunate to, to get a place. And I went off with just this very open mind about how I wanted to spend my time there, which was learn from other people. You know, you were in a classroom with 90 other students. Actually, it's not the class... The class in whole is 900. We were in a classroom of about 90 people who've all had completely different careers to yours. Mm. And I wanted to go in there and listen and learn and be inspired to think about what I wanted to do next. Such an, such an amazing, I say privilege, just, just to have that or moment opportunity to be able to stop and also just a bit more growing up and be sort of wanting to learn you know it's yeah so it is I, when you I go mean to university and you're just going through a process to actually exactly. consciously say I'm gonna open myself up and see what this takes me and and soak up all this information is I mean lovely to think we all do that as first time students but I, I know we definitely don't I mean for, for me the experience amazing. as a master's MBA student was very different to my time at Oxford which was I mean you're so young yeah. you're like 18 when you go and and, and so would, um, you, would you recommend it to people who might be thinking I mean I remember sort of five ten years ago friends talking about it and there's a kind of stage in it where you think shall I do it would you advise yeah. it and at what sort of age do you think is the best time to do an MBA so I would caveat everything that I've said in the sense that I don't think anyone needs to know an MBA I think that when you're considering it it's really important to think about the reasons why you're doing it because by the way it is very expensive, very expensive yeah. <laughs> I, I you know I've only just paid off my anything. student especially if you go to the US yeah so um I do not in any way and expect that this is an option that everyone is interested in doing or can take mm. and and for me I I was fortunate that I had got some savings from working in finance I did not want to ask my parents to pay for it I thought this is a luxury that I'm taking on and I will use my Fun savings it, yeah. and then get a loan um which was is expensive but I was I felt it was important that I took on that financial burden myself so I would say though so all of that aside I think that if you are in a position where you think okay this is something that I'm really seriously considering um I think there are lots of good reasons to do it I think that it can be a brilliant way for you to explore different industries that you wouldn't have necessarily known about it can be a career reset for example I mean at Harvard in particular there were loads of you know um, vets you know ex-military um, guys and girls and you know it was an opportunity for people to career pivot so many of the ex-military uh, students went into you know consulting or working for a big corporation and so I think it offers a chance to basically reset yeah. and pivot. And an amazing um, network, right? And an amazing network. So I think that people, 
prioritize different parts. I had friends who wanted to go specifically to build a network. Um, they already knew that they wanted to be in finance. So they were in finance. Other people do it for a holiday. I would say it's a very expensive <laughs> holiday. I wouldn't really encourage people Could to do that. Yeah. But I think for me, it was a great way to explore lots of things because I didn't know what I wanted to do I I wanted to take my time I have heard of other people saying there are other ways to do an MBA you can just down tools and via via a sort of network or just cold calling or yeah and also by the way go in and do six work placements and try different things that way exactly I have friends who you know I have one that went into a consulting job she she was a, a she was in finance and she took on a consulting role and she was staffed on five different projects through the course of you know the two years or even a year actually and and then she was like I'm done I've I've got what I wanted and it was basically as doing an MBA you know other people start up companies and they treat it you know it's almost like an MBA you're learning way more and I would say another caveat is that I don't think to be an entrepreneur you need to have an MBA You, you know in fact my father who is is was the entrepreneur that I grew up around I mean he didn't finish school I mean I think he technically did I think he got expelled from every (laughs) school he went to he sort of got went to university and then dropped out then he went back and I think he sort of finished it but you know it's that's a whole different ballpark um but you know just to bring it back to my decision it was it was about exploring different um different industries and understanding what a, a career in those industries might look like and so it was two years and two years. you obviously made um an amazing impression on harvard business school because you're now <laughs> on the board of trustees for british friends and of the business yes, school that's true. so it obviously went well and you came out two years later with your mba and yes. is that where sweet came from yeah so i look i had going in to the mba i had an assumption that I wanted to go and work around entrepreneurs. I wanted to be in that ecosystem. I wanted to do things that took me away from the Bloomberg terminal screens and the investment bank and went into being more on the ground and rolling my sleeves up and actually helping entrepreneurs. And I did that. So, you know, I got to work for companies like Glossier, which had just, well, actually, it was in about two years in at the time and got to work in the first office and, you know. And what was your role with Glossier? So I was doing a few projects for them. So essentially one of my friends had been the first employee in the company and, you know, I got to Harvard and this was at the time of the D2C boom, the direct consumer where everything was online and suddenly this idea that, you know, you didn't need to have a shop front and... Yeah, Yeah, and Glossier was really at the forefront of that. And, you know, I thought the story was fascinating. And I just said, look, let me come in and I'll do it. You know, effectively, I'll be an intern for you. I'm doing my MBA. But I worked on a couple of projects for them. Um, The first one was mainly around international expansion, because at the time they were just in the US and they were deciding whether to enter the Canadian market, European markets and, you know, beyond that. Um, But for me, it was just... And what were your findings? What was your... What did you leave them with? Well, I don't know if I can like comment too much on like Glossier's strategy, but you know, now you can see that they've they've they're now in multiple markets. But it was um it was it was a fascinating time and I think it was also a very interesting time in terms of consumer companies and you know what I thought was very interesting about Glossier was that it sprung out of a a blog. I mean, originally Emily had she'd essentially hacked how to reduce your what we'd call like customer acquisition cost by knowing having a a captive audience of readers so she knew from her blog into the gloss what people wanted to buy before she went and made it Mm -hmm. so you know the thesis around that company was a lot about okay well we've got a much more attractive customer acquisition cost and we can therefore be a lot more targeted in how we produce our products and um but so I I loved my time there and to your question about is that where Sweet came from effectively yes so I'd, I'd worked with a few companies I also you know I spent some time um, exploring private equity and you know I found that to be very similar to what I've been doing at JP Morgan and I again I had to ha- kind of catch myself and say okay no remember why you know why what is your guiding um, what is your guiding passion here? And for me, it had been to work around entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs like my father. Say, yeah. And, you know, but it's it's difficult because, you know, you're surrounded by people who do lots of different things. And 
So hence this sort of VC venture capital route. Exactly. Versus private equity. So I guess for people who perhaps don't know this world. Yes. Wait, and as very a VC happy. investor, yeah, if you yeah. could just define there's a difference between sure. private equity and what stage they come in versus VC money. So to compare it to what I was doing before, which was public markets, that is after a company has gone through initial public offering, it's traded like stocks and shares. It's a very different role because uh, the companies are, you know, the public is shareholders. You can then go onto the private side and that's when it becomes more about the stage and size of the company. So with private equity, you are generally working with pre-IPO companies or companies that don't intend, they want to remain private. And so you are essentially working a company that is... An IPO is listing for, for people Exactly. So you're likely working with very large companies, you're investing hundreds of millions of dollars, and you are... Um, the, the companies are probably quite mature by yeah. the point that you're investing in them. And below that, you have growth, growth equity or growth investing. And that tends to be, you know, when the company is not quite as mature as would be ready for a private equity company, private equity fund, but you're, you know, you're out of the blocks. You're not quite in that really early startup stage. You've probably had, you know, steady revenues for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, and then beneath growth, you have what's called more like venture capital or, or early stage investing. And that is in industry terms defined as anything from what's called pre-seed, seed investing, series A, and then by about what's called series B, which is basically just a chronological guide, you're into that sort of growth equity territory. So I decided that I would stick true to my uh, sort of passion and went from, you know, working in public equities, which is as far away as you can be from someone having an idea in a pitch deck yeah. and jumped straight into seed, seed and jumped straight into seed stage investing, which I have to say was a bit of a reconfiguration at the beginning because I'd been used to sitting in these screens and having data. Yeah, I had every number yeah, I could have possibly wanted. More, quite, yeah, quite and a then, risk. Yeah, exactly. And then I'm moving into a place where, you know, often these companies are, are pre-revenue or, Unproven, you know, they're still, and, then, and, and yeah. they may have lots of pivots to go and you're really investing in the person. And it was a big shift in terms of how I was analyzing the companies. And I had to sort of shift my expectations and just understand that it was a very different job to the one I'd been doing previously. But I loved it. Mm. And so, yes, that is where Sweets Capital came in. So, And Sweet Capital was launched by, it spun out of... So Sweet was founded by the entrepreneurs behind a company called King, which is most well known for their game Candy Crush. And can't say <laughs> that is my field, but my neighbor did used to work for them. So. It, is, uh, it is an amazing, it is an amazing, amazing. company. And... Yeah. The founders sold that company to uh, another gaming company called Activision Blizzard in 2015-16 for around $6 billion, which was, you know, highly successful exit. And the founders essentially wanted to take some of the, the proceeds that they'd made from that transaction and put it into a early stage fund that they could use to give back to early stage founders. I always remember when I was being interviewed at the very beginning, my colleague Ricardo said, you know, the earlier stage is the hardest time to get someone to invest. And you just need one person to believe in you. And, you know, he's someone who has a fascinating story, Ricardo Zacconi. I really recommend listening to, to his journey because um, that's a true story of entrepreneurship. And, and they wanted to give back. You know, they wanted to say, okay, we've done well and we'd like to give back. And, and also they're just passionate about it. They're entrepreneurs. They don't want to be investors per se. They want to be entrepreneurs that can help other entrepreneurs. So I was sort of right place, right time. I was I was getting more involved in the ecosystems of entrepreneurs in Harvard and MIT. And so I actually got a cold DM on LinkedIn from someone at the fund who said, look, we're thinking about adding another investor to the team. Would you be interested in having a chat? And at this point, I didn't really know anything about venture capital. I'd really, I knew that I wanted and to work on entrepreneurs. how many years ago is this now? Uh, so this is four or five years ago now. And so I knew that I was interested in the area, but I really knew nothing about venture capital and ended up going to this call. I mean, I'm, I'm the type of person that would always prep for a call, but the reality was is I, it wasn't that I had this goal of going to venture capital and then had been training for this. It was like the next day he called me. So I sort of kind of told him a bit about my background, shared about my story, shared about why I was so passionate about wanting to work with entrepreneurs and, and 
you know, the work that I've been doing at Harvard and on the MIT campus, working with the ecosystems and and long story short, you know, after, you know, a week where I probably had five interviews back to back, um, they offered me a role. And initially they asked me to, while I was still at Harvard, to be a scout, what's called a scout for them, which is effectively sending them opportunities that I come across amongst Harvard students and MIT students, kind of East Coast. And, yeah. and then, you know, they said, and when you graduate, we'd love you to join full time. And that's what eventually ended up happening, happening after I decided fully that actually I want to pursue early stage and and private equity is is interesting to me, but it's it's not, I think, where I see myself building a real career. And ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're a partner. You joined as? So I joined as a principal, which is effectively, I was a second investor. So I was working for a partner and then we had an investment investment committee of all the other partners. So my job was really to go out and diligence, deal, source, find out what companies were being built, go to all the industry events. And, um, and then excitingly, I was promoted to a partner in 2019. So I've been a partner now for quite some time and I actually now have, I actually now manage the fund. So that involves kind of overseeing all of our existing portfolio as well as looking for new investments to make too. And what is in, well, you've, you've been involved with some incredible businesses, but for people listening, what, who have you invested in? So the types of companies that Sweet was initially investing in were very much consumer companies, but consumer tech. So the idea was that, you know, we built a very successful gaming company. Can we take some of those lessons in gamification and how you build a product and apply them into other sectors, you know, be it fintech, be it healthcare, you know, could it be an app that helps you, you know, live more healthily. So we did a lot of investments in the sort of consumer mobile space and things like social networks. We've become a lot more generalist over the years. So our portfolio ranges from companies that are doing fintech, some are B2B, SaaS, which is software as a service, um, healthcare. I mean, I think the one that has got the most interest recently, and I should point out as well that I'm an angel investor. So I often will also invest personally and as an individual, not just from the fund. And there was one investment that I did recently with a couple of other members from the fund who, which has sort of blown up called Be Real, which is, you know, a new social network, which emphasizes on authenticity. And I don't know if you've used the product or, you know, I haven't, I, the product. it's sort of there like taunting me. I mean, you're supposed to post what once a day or something. You post once a day. And the yeah. idea is that there is a prompt at a time that is not predictable yeah. and so you have to take it at the certain time I'm not, and I'm not sure I'm ready for it, but I, I mean, it's like the ant it's like the anti Instagram yeah. so the yeah. founder was that he was very inspired it's French, right? by it's originally French yes but I mean it's a sort of global now yeah. but yeah. he was very impassioned by the fact that what we were watching and what users were creating on Instagram was very fake and I mean, the clue is in the name, <laughs> be real. He really wanted to try and create an alternative social network. So, but I'd say we, you know, we also have, you know, Your, biotech. And Peanut is? Peanut is phenomenal. So Peanut is a social network for women who are exploring different life stages from all the way from, you know, the beginning could be anything from trying to conceive and the journey up to motherhood 
through motherhood and then you know all the way up through to menopause so at the beginning michelle kennedy who is a phenomenal founder and oh, i encourage yeah. everyone to Listen follow to her podcast she is she's she incredible yeah. i i am um, i was very, i'm always very inspired working with michelle and the initial um, business was very much around connecting mums so you know motherhood can be a lonely time and can you meet other how can you meet other women yeah. that are going through similar things to you and um and she was bumble of and course people yes people exactly so she um started peanut and as lots of good businesses do it has evolved to become mm. something much larger over the years um so yeah being prepared to sort of pivot and evolve yes. yeah she's done that i'm also an investor in uh Charmadine reed um who stack. is the founder of the stack yeah. the stack world which is a really incredible platform which is empowering women to develop personal skills in the workplace and something you guys should actually uh someone you guys should definitely partner yeah, with again another, for this. another amazing woman yeah uh, and do you do you seek out i mean we all know i guess two questions i mean we all know how little investment goes into female entrepreneurs and that mm. they drive a better roi than men yeah. i think we're more cautious aren't we and um less driven driven by ego maybe um, <laughs> Do you, do you consciously seek out women to invest in? And then I guess another question about you as a female investor. Yeah. I mean, maybe the sure. first one first. But. So I, I just, my passion is to find the best entrepreneurs at what they're doing. And for me, it just happens that a lot of them have been women. So for me, it's never really been a conscious choice of I want to back this founder because they're a woman. It has been like, I want to find someone that has these skills or these traits, which are resilience. They have to have a clear view about what they want to do and why. And then all the other things like, you know, do I believe that this is a product that is scalable, that has a large market size? And and by the way, we, it gets into a bit of a nuance as to what suits a venture capital investment versus what could be a good business because they're not necessarily always the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes it's just happened that the founder is a woman. And, you know, in my angel investing portfolio and across the fund, you know, we have very high representation of women and it is not because we are investing in them because they're women. We invest in them because they are brilliant entrepreneurs, brilliant operators. And for me, that's how it should be. Mm. There's clearly I, a disconnect. I didn't think when you, I didn't <laughs> think you find a, a brilliant woman with a brilliant concept. That's like really exciting. Not that there are lots of brilliant men out there I'm not out to sort of bash men but sure I do think brilliant female entrepreneurs are, are really exciting to absolutely and you know Michelle and Charmadine are great examples those are just two that I've just thought off the top of my head mm. you know there are lots of other women in our portfolio and in, in my angel portfolio but I, I think there's clearly a disconnect because the fact that so little funding goes to all women entrepreneurs there has to be something behind that and I for me I can't make logical sense of it um, same with the fact that, you know, the industry is getting better, but the fact that I think most recently I read that only 11% of partners, so senior level in venture capital are women in the UK. And that's just doesn't make sense. <laughs> do, you, do you not think though that if you're, if you're a woman and you want it uh, and you've got the idea, you know, there's still just as much chance of getting it. I feel like there are lots of investors now that are seeking out women for those reasons and because they see that women drive better ROIs and but I, I remember interviewing Nicola Horlick many many years ago mm. and she was saying that she had this view that not all women wanted to be the icing on the cake quite quite a lot a lot of the time they wanted to be the marzipan and they didn't necessarily want so they, I see I think maybe you combine motherhood and the pressures of that and it's definitely all changing but I think it's also it's also perhaps they don't all want it and then maybe there's a bit of self-belief in it as well. I don't think we're as, we're not driven by ego. We, we are more <laughs> likely to, you know, suffer from imposter syndrome and, you know, and I, but that can be a great but that's, reason but that's why also women's really why, backable, isn't, isn't That's it? why I also think that, you know, doing things like you guys are doing with launching a business and finance supplement, because I think often it's just about having the confidence mm. and understanding that, you know, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to be an entrepreneur. You could be a nuclear physicist um, if you wanted to. You, and I, I don't know, I, I, I don't like to think that women are less ambitious. I don't think that's the case. I do think that 
when you look at things like the absolute numbers in hirings, that to me is something which is more systematic. I don't want, I don't want to kind of blame women for it as well, you know, because I no. think that's not that I know that's not what we're saying. But you know, I don't think the onus necessarily just falls on us women to be like, okay, we need to go and do the work. There are clearly systematic pressures in the industry that have resulted in such a skew. I mean, yeah. it doesn't make any sense, right? Like eleven yeah. percent of partners being female versus you know all the rest being being men is it doesn't really make any sense to have 11 percent women i do think that i do think the pressure that comes from being a partner or an entrepreneur as a woman as a mother and the mental loads you know however good a father or a partner is and that there are i was with a girlfriend last night who works for google and her husband runs their home and their family and and that's his job amazing i mean amazing and she said you know she was talking to his her father or someone said and they said let's call him tom he's not called tom they said you just tom need a break and tom need something the idea that if it was the other way around those questions so funny i i recommend everyone following mental load perhaps holds us back as well because it is a lot to take on that mental load of motherhood combined with being a partner and you know you've got to be made of pretty strong stuff yeah, I think that, I mean, I encourage everyone to follow the Peanut Instagram. She makes, I mean, it's not Michelle who runs it, but they make so many funny quips about, you know, the role of motherhood and careers. And, and it's probably one of my favorite Instagram accounts, Peanut. <laughs> I, I would say, I mean, I would say, I, I know you're quite a bit younger than me, but I, I would say all the more reason to go for it. As soon as you sort of know that that's a path you want to pursue, whether it's top table, whether it's, yeah, you know, whether it's an entrepreneur or, and know, that's why partner, actually I as well, just get going because I, I think a lot of women start their own businesses when they decide not to return to corporate world because it's sort of, they reevaluate. And life. that can be a fantastic reason to start a business. It can be because you've got a passion that you want to pursue. Mm. And by the way, not all businesses need to be billion dollar venture capital backed yes, businesses so to IPO. You can have a really successful business that yeah. you run for yourself and you know my sister's a chef my other sister's an architect you know they are self-employed and but they're entrepreneurs yeah yeah. so I think that there is you know a bit of thought that needs to go into you know in the world that I work it's very much venture capital we are all aiming to shoot for the moon and we want these to be billion dollar businesses but those aren't all businesses yeah and I think that doesn't have to be no does it yeah and and you can be extremely successful with a company that is that is is a lot smaller, um, sometimes more successful. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just saying the other day, um, there's a girl called Katie Divent who runs Katie and Joe in Parsons Amazing. Green, and she does really well from a really freaking great shop, and she knows her customer really well, and she has a really Look, really nice. She works really bloody hard, but ultimately, I think it's you know, for me. Really I'm admirable. always like you're solving for how do you want to spend the days of your life and how do you want to spend the hours in those days? And, and actually I think that, um, that's why the advice I give often is like, use your twenties to try out loads of things. Mm. And that, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean like career hopping. I think that you also do want to try and stick something out for a few years, um, just to give it enough time Mm -mm. because you know, the jobs can evolve and your responsibilities will get larger. But my advice has always been to try and, get the most experience, take the hardest path. That was something I was told when I was about to graduate yes, you said from that Oxford. in your interview with us yeah. before. I loved that advice. And it was, it's not hard in the sense that, oh, I'm a masochist and I want to, you know, really struggle. It's more, where am I going to have the steepest learning curve? Yeah. Especially because I was told that when I was graduating from Oxford and it really informed how I thought about building a portfolio of skills throughout my 20s that then in your 30s and 40s and onwards, you can draw from and it will also serve to help you know what it is you like again like we were saying right at the beginning I think there's this massive misconception that people are supposed to just know what they want to do um and I think that I I think you know Gen Z Gen Z are a lot better at trying to try lots of different things but I yeah I just think having this learning mindset Mm throughout your 20s but then also onwards is really important yeah and um, even, even now my 12 yeah. daughter, i'm like le- learn about she she actually and a friend want to start a whole a whole platform where they showcase other industries to amazing children because you know I, I grew up at school thinking you know that doctor actress um <laughs> yeah exactly you, none of those you feel out. like there are the, your limited 
you have to go out and explore and also you know the world is changing a lot now like when you're graduating if I was graduating from Oxford now I think you know a lot of the big tech companies would be knocking on mm. on the door of students um yeah it is such it's just one. different so I think you've got to and remain flexible can we talk a little bit just about being I mean you mentioned was was it 16 percent you said of partners in 11 actually <laughs> 11 gosh even in venture capital so 11 percent of right. of partners in venture capital in the UK are, are women only and I guess if we can lump together being an investor so whether that's yep. private equity whether that's growth whether that's VC whether that's something else what's your view of this industry that you're in for a woman, you know, those numbers are obviously low in terms of representation. Um, I'm sure it's changing um, <laughs> with flexible working and you yeah. know, it do- does make it easier. But um, yeah, what's your, what is your view? What's it like being a woman in your world? Is it even a thing for you still? Um, I, think, I think my advice is just go for it. Like I, I truly don't think that it should be a prohibitor to any woman who's interested in work in any aspect of finance but you know I can speak more clearly to VC I think that you know the industry is getting a lot better at um, hiring women and I also think that over the years my hope is it's a pipeline uh, timeline thing because the thing that annoys me my pet peeve is when you go onto an investment funds website and you go on the team page and it's dotted around with lots of little thumbnail pictures and there's lots of women. But then when you click on the thumbnail, they are an assistant or they are someone who's, they're not an investment role. And by the way, that's not me putting the investment role at the top of the hill. That's me saying that you are claiming that you are, you know, very diverse across your fund. But then actually when you look into all these women that you put at the top of the page of your website, they're actually more support roles as opposed to being you know an investment partner or someone who's mm-hmm. actually investing dollars out of the fund so that's my pet peeve um I, but i would say to women just go for it if it's something you're passionate about i've never been someone that's good at hearing no for an answer i just don't believe that i always believe that you if you set your mind to something you can achieve it and i would probably say that's been my guiding principle throughout my whole career so far which has just been you know, why not? You've got amazing style and an amazing oh, so career sweet. story. And like, it's like truly hugely inspiring. And um, thank you for amazing. kind words. And, and I'll be following along to sort of see where you go next. And I'm sure you've got to scratch that itch of actual entrepreneur, not just. Well, I don't know. The thing is, I, I absolutely love working with entrepreneurs because I love with my with my current role, you know, in the morning, I could be meeting a biotech founder. In the afternoon, I could be meeting someone who's building a consumer app. And the next day, I could be working with a space tech company. Yeah. So in a way, I'm scratching that yeah, itch yeah. by working and with the founders. Angel investments as well. But and of course, I mean, I, I just absolutely love being in, in this world. And, and I truly feel very fortunate that I've ended up finding a a role that really suits me and that I'm passionate about. Yeah, I, was gonna, I mean, I was about <clears> to say you've truly followed your passion and, and given the story you've just talked us through of your career I wanted to ask you some specific please more specific target <laughs> questions I'm going to sort of fire questions at you and Go rattle through them because I personally <clears throat> would love um love to hear the answers um to them so as a partner at Sweet can you yeah. tell me what specific qualities or traits that really endear you when you're interested in a business is it the plan is it big numbers is it traits of the entrepreneur what do you what are you looking for what really gets your attention of course there's a range of things but i'd say at the very earliest stage i'm really looking for the founder to be someone who is visionary resilient but also a very good operator so what i mean by that is can you actually execute you know everyone can have an idea but what's going to set you aside from the pack and saying okay 10 people have this idea what makes you the one that's actually going to make it work so a lot of it is around the founder and then I'd say, of course, there are other aspects like, do I, am I excited about the industry that they're building in? Do I believe that there is a sizable um, opportunity here? And also, are the unit economics, is the business model sound? Can this actually scale? Is this a problem people want to pay money to solve? Mm-hmm. Because there can be lots of problems that we find annoying, but do people actually want to open their wallets and pay for it? Mm. Do we need a dummy holder? Mm-hmm. There are so many Probably times not. when there's a pet peeve you have, but you need to validate yeah. that it's, it's a shared yeah. 
massively shared problem across the industry to make a business. Yeah. Um, when it comes to a plan, what's the most important thing, a good, robust business plan? I would say at this point, the market is very focused on your revenue projections, a very specific roadmap, which means that, you know, okay, literally I am aiming to hit these milestones by this time. And then, you know, I, I said to scalable unit economics, that's effectively that there is enough margin in your product that you can actually turn a profit. And this company is going to be profitable at some point. We went through a very, you know, wild bull market the last few years where people were very happy to invest loads of money in things that they had no idea how they were actually going to make money. Mm-mm. But there was just this sense of optimism. And I think there is optimism now, but I'd say for right now, I would say if you're, if you're presenting your pitch to an investor, be really clear on how you are going to scale your revenue and aim for profitability and if you're an entrepreneur who's looking for a sector to go in or a category would you be saying i mean you you mentioned margin you've obviously got to have a business model yeah um what would you say on sort of product versus tech versus service in terms of what's sort of sexy attractive for so so if you're it's it's funny that i think it was mark zuckerberg who I don't want to put in a pedestal in any way, but he already said that if you're looking to start, if you're looking for an idea to start a business around, then you've got it the wrong way. You should almost flip it and say, okay, let's go internally and think, what am I passionate about? What are the problems that I want to solve? And once you identify that, you can go out and validate if others agree with you. Is this a big problem to solve? Again, let's use Michelle Kennedy. She found in the early stages of motherhood that wouldn't it be cool if I could have an app to find more mum friends or other women who are going through same things as me. And she went out with that thesis and validated it. And it turns out, yes, that is a huge shared problem across, across lots of women and has made a very successful business out of it. So I would actually flip it and not Passion say, first. okay, I'm looking for... I'm looking for, you know, this top-down approach of I want to do something in here. I would try and flip it into, you know, what are you passionate about? Uh, I do think it's fascinating, though, when you you find sort of MBA grads and management consultants who sort of have this ability to sort of funnel into a sector and go, right, create a business around this. I guess you've then got to be able to... But that's what I said, for me, I hope you're going to love it enough to then turn that into I'm not looking to invest in MBAs necessarily, and that's not to, like, shoot my own kind, but I just think that... (laughs) I'm not, those aren't necessarily the, I'm not looking at someone's resume, CV when they're pitching me really um, in terms of those like education milestones. Uh, I mean, maybe this is answer that question. Uh, Are there, are there other mistakes, pitfalls that you've seen in entrepreneurs that you could share with people listening? So there's a few general housekeeping things, which I would say are avoidable and it's annoying because they are avoidable and those are generally around cash management. So you know, and maybe it's the case that you've got an entrepreneur who's really visionary, but you can solve that by hiring a COO or hiring a CFO or hiring someone that is your co-founder who is more inclined to just be very, very on top of things like that. Because, and again, I want to restrict this to venture capital startups. A lot of what you're doing is just managing your runway, your cash runway. You're trying not to run out of money, basically. So I think what's really frustrating for me is when I see entrepreneurs who, who, you know, just don't really think ahead of time. They don't realize that they they don't leave enough time to go out and do a new fundraise to basically go off and bolster their bank account. So they could be an amazing entrepreneur. They could have an amazing idea, but they just don't give themselves enough time to do that. And look, and you can you be visionary, but then yeah, but then then, but then hire someone else who's yeah. who is good at that. So and, and solve you for your weaknesses. You mentioned hiring someone as a co a CFO as a co-founder, yeah. for example. Are you more or less or or neither um, attracted to people with co-founders or independent entrepreneurs? Do, do you have it's, a point it's of view It's very, that? very, it varies a huge amount. Um, and sorry, when I said CFO, I didn't mean CFO as a co-founder, but you know, right. I think what I'm looking for an entrepreneur is, can you plug the gaps that you see you're missing in skills and experience, et cetera? Okay. So. Um, are, are there, I mean, I know you've said it's about passion, just out of interest. I mean, you've worked Alibaba, Glossier, were you Alibaba? No. no, but I, I was, I was studying them as a company okay. at JP so Morgan. So you studied, you studied Alibaba, <laughs> or, or as an analyst looked at yeah. Alibaba at JP yeah. Morgan. You worked with Glossier. Yeah. Um, Peanut, you've, you know, are there particular categories you personally sectors that you personally are really interested in? 
when I go out and I look for a company that I want to invest in, I'm actually looking to be led by the founder. So I think, look, we can talk about market trends. Like at the moment, everyone wants to talk about AI and like deep tech I is do, in again. Okay, great. Well, <laughs> tee that one up. But ultimately, I am looking for entrepreneurs who are going to redefine a market. I want entrepreneurs to school me and tell me something that I don't know that I'm missing. And and that's when I get really excited about entrepreneurs when because if everyone everyone was doing this, then it wouldn't be a business opportunity. So sure, over the years I've invested in everything from consumer to fintech to healthcare to biotech and ultimately I the the best companies have have been not when I've gone out with a clipboard being like, I need to invest in ABC, but it's been when I have met a founder that completely schools me in an opportunity that I wouldn't have even thought of. That's why they're the entrepreneur and why I'm the investor. So. And and if there were, if people are, I mean, you've mentioned Michelle Kennedy, Charlie Reed. Yeah. Um, the guy, the one of the founders of- Alexi uh, Barrier, yeah. Um, oh, sorry, Ricardo. Ricardo. Um, yes. If there were sort of three other inspiring business leaders, entrepreneurs, brands that you think are like really good case studies, like you talked about Glossier, you talked about Peanut, are there are there other yeah businesses or leaders, entrepreneurs that you would say, oh, go and go and investigate their story? Like I think the found you know the yeah. founders of Trip, uh, that's an amazing. <laughs> An amazing so, story of for me they're I think amazing and by the way I live from Trip is a very good friend of mine so oh. I'm a big fan of Trip so for me I've always loved reading and listening to podcasts so I think great resources are to you know obviously there's the industry press so there's things like TechCrunch and Sifted which was a spin out from the FT which will tell you more about fundraising and and sort of that what companies sense. are being created the problem with that is that often they're backwards looking right so you're reading about someone that's already made something and it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily inspire you to have a new idea I mean maybe it would but so I think for me the things that inspire me a, a lot more about the sort of life stories again this is mm. not necessarily for my job but just what I enjoy listening to yeah, yeah, so some that's... amazing podcasts out there um I should give a plug to my very good friend Harry Stebbings he has the sort of number one venture capital um podcast where he will interview entrepreneurs and investors about their journeys and in doing that you can really uncover a lot of very fascinating stories I mean there's the Stephen Bartlett podcast um and I find personally, I just like listening to stories. Yeah. So I, I love to, something, don't you? yeah, I love to listen idea. to a podcast and, and hear the story of, you know, how we built it. You know, mm -hmm. that podcast as well is fantastic. Yeah, that was the original, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Um, you, you touched on AI. Yeah. Can I ask you about AI? Sure. <laughs> what, what's your view? I mean, as, as an individual, as an investor, as a, yeah, what, what's your... I think by definition, doing the job I do, I have to be an absolute futurist. I am very, very positive on, you know, technological change. That's why I do the job that I do. So, you know, I consider AI to be, you know, one of several huge technological shifts that we've experienced in our lifetimes and we will continue to experience. And, you know, again, I think I take it back to growing up with a father who was, and I use this word for myself, an absolute futurist if I can say that where you know he used to have great skepticism about anyone who was really obsessed with studying history or looking backwards and I actually quite liked history but because um, I think it can inform you understanding the, the present but you know he was like why would you hinder anything which is forward change you know and so this this pursuit of relentless forward progress was something I was I was um, I was given as the child of like you know an inventor entrepreneur science mad engineer <laughs> so for me i see ai as you know a huge opportunity and i think that humans are very flexible species and mm -hmm. i think we will find a way to work with ai in a yeah. very in a way that works for us um and we're already seeing that you know i've i've been blown away by you know the pace of the way in which ai has been incorporated into lots of existing companies and obviously you know i'm i'm meeting lots of companies all the time which are now um, innovating on the forefront of AI. So I'm I'm an optimist. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> we've got to get our heads around it, embrace it, sooner the better. Um, I agree. We've done, we've done your incredible career journey. We've talked about business. Can we talk a bit about sort of finance and 
advice that you would give people when it comes to personal finance, when it comes to making, you know, personal investments, maintaining healthy financial practices? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I'm probably most qualified to talk about is angel investing. So, and that's a massive passion project for me as well, which is, so just to define it, angel investing is effectively when you as an individual are investing in the very early stage of a company. So the term actually, I looked this up because I did a I did a talk on angel investing and trying to get more women into angel investing. And it was originally a term that was used for benefactors in I think the US when people were trying to get shows onto Broadway and they needed like a wealthy donor to basically give them startup money to go out and try and get the show on Broadway. Really? And they needed then, a guardian angel. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is literally, that is this sort of analogy. And then a business school professor like years later used it for applying that to an early stage business. So I have, um, I've been someone, so I've done several angel investments. I've done actually lots of angel investments over the last few years. And for me, I think the main, the main pieces of advice I would give are to take your time. So a little bit goes back to knowing what you're interested in and Mm. the same resources that I said you could use as an entrepreneur to keep on top of industry trends I think if you're serious about being an angel investor and starting to dip your toe into investing in individuals or sorry into early stage companies start to look at the areas of the market that interest you but also and, and what you're passionate about but I think as an angel investor it's really important that you consider what are the skills that I could bring to the table so maybe let's take you know, someone that had been at Glossier for a very long time, you know, they haven't per se been an investor before, but they know everything there is to know yeah, about yeah. direct to consumer, about packaging, about marketing, about um, scaling a beauty product, about how you deal with manufacturers. manufacturers, And so they would be an incredible angel investor for a beauty business. Yeah. You know, you could bring in a lot of skills that haven't per se been investment skills, but you would be invaluable to an entrepreneur. Mm. So I would say, take your time, figure out what where you could kind of add value to a founder. And then once you do it, go slowly and write smaller checks. I was going to say, write very small checks because yes. you know the, the chances like, are, yes. it's not, it, you know, it's a bit of a sort of hobby initially, but what an And I would say, you know, angel investing is not something you should be piling all of your savings no. into. It's something like, I think I read online, you know, it should be like no more than 5% of your overall, you know, money that you have to invest. Right. So because it's a very high risk asset class, but I think often people are doing it because it's something they're passionate about yeah. and they they get something out of it beyond just a financial return. And it's almost as if a financial return will be, you know, an up, you know, an upside that was unexpected. So I think um, write small checks. Um, and is there an average angel investment Yes, yeah, so angel investment sizes can use, typically range from like 10K to like 50K, maybe up to 100K on, on the high end. Um, of course, you have exceptions on either end and you have things like crowdfunding where you can put in, you know, 100 pounds uh, into a crowdfunding campaign. On the other Would end, you? you have someone Would who's- Would you advise that? I, I can't like give broad okay. advice because I think okay. it really depends. Um, yeah. Or you can have be as prepared to lose via angel investing as much as you would. Yeah, be and I obviously I want to caveat that none of this constitutes financial advice. Absolutely, yeah. Right, you beat me to it. Thank you so much. For <laughs> no, no, you're so welcome. But um, and so I think that for me and you know I, I have spoken about I do, I do do talks on angel investing and I would encourage anyone who's interested in that topic to to follow me and I will probably post more about it at some point or maybe Amazing. we could do something yeah I'd love to and yeah. where where do you if you aren't an angel which is sort of it's at the family family and friend stage isn't it angel um it's so I mean angel investors tend to invest at the very earliest stage so that is really when you're trying to cobble together a first what you'd call like MVP you know minimum viable product like we talked before about you have an idea that this is a problem you want to fix, then you want to go out and validate whether other people agree. So what are you gonna do? It's at that point when you're saying, okay, I actually need to raise a bit of money to try and get this off the ground. That's and, where they come in. Yeah. And, and you know, we, need to, we need to carry on this conversation all day because <laughs> it, it, it's really interesting. But I, I guess two final questions. Sure. If you want to raise angel investment, yes. where do you go looking for it? And if you are interested to be an angel investor yes where would you go looking for the entrepreneurs to invest in other kind of official 
So networks. I would start with the second one first, which is if you want to be an angel investor, I would say that you can just start to put yourself out there in the different forums that there are. And by that, I mean, you know, update your LinkedIn, say that you're, because entrepreneurs will find you. Entrepreneurs, <laughs> the whole point about entrepreneurs is that they are uh, very capable. Can they are just... out, they are looking for fundraising. They will find you. So if you start to, you know, update, you know, it used to be Twitter, but I don't know if people use Twitter as much at the moment, but like LinkedIn, um, and basically just start getting involved in some of, I mean, there are different organizations. There's one called Alma Angels that you can join. Um, but if you if you do a bit of research on, again, industry publications like TechCrunch or Sifted, there are generally ways that you can sign up to being put in a directory of angel investors and et cetera. I think if you're looking for angel investment, it's the same way that you would be looking for, you know, fundraising from a VC. You would have a target list of people, funds, experience that you want to get on your cap table which is basically the list of your investors and then you would go out so for example again let's stick with the beauty example if I say I'm going to go out and make a beauty brand I'm going to do my homework and I'm going to look at let's look at the last 10 beauty deals that I can read about who invested in them oh and within that are there any yeah. angel investors um, and then I would go out and try and cold email them or reach out to them and a lot of a lot of what you you need to do as an entrepreneur is is hustle and develop those relationships mm. and, and fundraising is and, yeah and fundraising yeah. is a really key part of being an entrepreneur. You need to be able to sell yourself in the business. You work on that especially in venture capital. Work on that elevator pitch. Um, <laughs> I can't thank you enough oh, for you're so taking welcome. part in our first business careers and finance edition. Can you share some parting words of wisdom? I think just go for it. I think have the confidence and. Don't take no for an answer. That's always been my governing principle. <laughs> well, I'm glad to say that I did a short interview for this first edition and my final point was just go for it. So we're well, aligned. We're very, we're very we're aligned. aligned on that too. Um, Pippa, thank you so much. You're so welcome, um, Your social handles are? It's just my name, so Pippa Lamb. Pippa Lamb yep, on, on Instagram. All of them, yeah, okay. Instagram, Twitter. Amazing. Thank you so much. That's it for today. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, share with others to listen to, and we'll be back soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.